Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And thank you all once again for sticking with us once again through our (laughs) mini hiatus. Um, So we're going to record a little bonus episode talking about the past couple of months, just as an update for those of you who are interested care about us. Um, And for those listeners who prefer when we are less chatty, um, maybe just skip that bonus episode and go in with our next our uh, next regularly scheduled content. And we're joined in studio by (laughs) the worst cat. (laughs) Amber's here at my house. And so is my cat (laughs) who wants to be part of the show. Yeah. So she's just testing the acoustics. Yeah. Uh, Turns out great for meowing. (laughs) This week, we are picking up where we left off in our conversation with Pat Edwards and talking more about science fiction. So it was really great to talk to Pat uh, just like as an actual science fiction Mm -hmm. author to get his take on the approach to creating other worlds and sort of where archaeology and anthropology fit into that as as inspiration and as kind of a way to to ground that in um, some sort of reality, whether whether it's sort of a, a created reconstruction of the past oh somebody's in the toilet somebody's in the kitty toilet this is going so well anyway we talked to pat and it was great and for this episode this sort of second portion because this was a sponsored question yeah uh, uh, we want to get back into alan's actual request like the alan's actual question yeah which (laughs) which specifically touched on appearances of sci-fi in the archaeological record or in in sort of like the the historical record in the past yeah and and sort of how um the the relationships between sci-fi and archaeology there's very realistic archaeological digging noises happening next to me i'm amazed that we didn't get one of her toilet songs she she does like to sing so let's get into it yeah. So first, let's discuss genre a little bit. Um, so what are we calling science fiction for today's purposes, like the purposes of specifically this episode? Um, as a genre, the borders of, of science fiction are uh, contested, shall we say. Oh, my God. <laughs> the, the borders are, shall we say, contested, ranging from sci-fi was always there as long as there's been fiction to sci-fi does not exist until the scientific revolution. You can't the have one, science until there's science. Yeah, like capital Aww. S science. So, you know, that's the one that started in the late 17th century and yeah, the European the, scientific the revolution. Yeah. So um, I think that what might be more productive for this conversation today is for us to tackle the idea of speculative fiction. Um, no, no, no shots on Alan, like asking no, no, about no. science fiction, no. but, but just thinking about, um, speaking about speculative fiction 
because it, it will let us sidestep the, uh, frankly, Eurocentric um, and biased definitions of what science even is and what science fiction can be. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we're going we're gonna to do speculative fiction. That's great. That sounds great. I love that. Can you please tell me what speculative fiction yes. is? This is like ripped from an actual text thread between me and Anna like two years ago. Yeah. I, I'm just being like, just, what is speculative fiction? Is and I'm just thing? like, let me tell you. It is what I read. Um, and so we're going to, we're going to pull a definition. I'm going to quote from the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Literature. Literature. Um, who uh, begins their entry on speculative fiction thus. The term speculative fiction has three historically located meanings. A subgenre of science fiction that deals with human rather than technological problems. A genre distinct from and opposite to science fiction in its exclusive focus on possible futures. And a supercategory for all genres that deliberately depart from imitating consensus reality that's in quotes, of everyday experience. In this latter sense, speculative fiction includes fantasy, science fiction, and horror, but also their derivatives, hybrids, and cognate genres like the gothic, dystopia, weird fiction, post-apocalyptic fiction, ghost stories, superhero tales, alternate history, steampunk, slipstream, magical realism, fractured fairy tales, and more. And more. My my little ears perked up just at the very end of that because you said fractured fairy tales, and I know that term from Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> but that, it's not. That's like a. It's a do, segment in Rocky okay, and Bullwinkle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Where they where they just goofily and wrongly tell fairy tales. Oh, yeah. Interesting. It's a, I looked some of them up on YouTube. They they have the segments on YouTube, and they're real fun. Yeah. And so if you want to learn more about speculative fiction, which we're going to take, so for what we're doing today, we're going to take that as sort of the third definition, the kind mm-hmm. of like super genre that um, other things can fold into, like because of what I like mentioned before about just like the the Eurocentrism sure. and sort of yeah. um, bias towards thinking there is a modernity that is what informs um, yeah. Yeah. Um, science fiction. Uh, but if you want to learn more about the, the genre and sort of uh, an understanding of the genre from like a literary critical perspective, um, I'll have the um, Oxford Research Encyclopedia entry in the show notes. Um, so when we talk about sci-fi and speculative fiction in the in antiquity or um in the ancient past we're kind of limited because if we think of it as a literary genre we have to have written sources yep so gotta have writing we talk yeah and so that's that kind of cuts out a lot of human history oops well human past yeah um yeah because we don't have uh, written sources um but i want to um but like when we think about this stuff, Anna, and like when we talk about this stuff, and when folks are thinking about this as they listen to the episode and as they go on with whatever they do for the rest of their days, I want to think about have um, a great day, everybody. I want to think about um, other uh, like the, the other aspects that come into play when it comes to speculative fiction. So thinking about um, and ways that we can maybe think about non-writing. Sure. In speculative fiction and sort of fictive realities. So we can think about um, 
we can have authors who who write the stuff, um, but we can also have artists. And so thinking of an artist as an author, as like the creator of and and sort of purveyor the of broadest a narrative. definition of author is, is yeah. a person who makes a thing. Um, and thinking about um, the artist's intent, mm-hmm. uh, what they're trying to do, and um, and and sort of furthermore thinking about the role of art itself. And so like what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish through their art, is it to reproduce reality or is it to um, produce or explore some aspect of unreality? Um, And that's something that I, um, that's something that I like to think about as like the role of art. And I've gotten in arguments at bars with people about this and you never, (laughs) and just sort of that uh, one of the great things about art and one of the things that um, one of the, the like the great things about art is that terrible things can happen in it, and then uh, we can explore those emotions, and then it's over. And yeah. and it's sort of and, and like it hasn't really happened to you. You've yeah, witnessed and, it and happening. Then they're like art and like visual culture, any kind of artistic expression is a great way to um, explore things that can't exist um, either because they, they shouldn't or because they're just, they just can't. And so it's a, um, it's a way to um, it's a, a means of exploration or liberation or, or just curiosity. Um, and so, because I, I think that in, in lots of cases, if it could happen, just do it. Why would you go to all the effort to invest these like resources and time and talent into something that just is? So like, why not explore what could be? Yeah. And so this is the sort of thing that I've also like gotten in arguments with people in classes before, like in our history classes about like, they're not, it's not necessarily like representative of anything it doesn't it, have it, to be well it's mm, representative of anything real yeah like it's not documentary necessarily and so just thinking about thinking about that and i don't want to like let's not linger on on this too much but just thinking about like when we see cave art mm. when we see when we see any kind of representations of anything um in prehistoric contexts or just ahistoric contexts is that perhaps speculative fiction is it is it fiction it's good to consider that as an option for interpretation exactly like we aren't necessarily seeing through their eyes seeing through their brain through their mind through their imagination exactly yeah um but but we're not it's not a way to like hit rewind no through time and like look at something and so that's that's something else that we have here. But if we're going to look at science fiction, speculative fiction in writing. And we are. Uh, which we, we absolutely are. Um, interestingly enough, the earliest example, arguably one of the earliest pieces of fiction at all, um, from the Epic of Gilgamesh. There you go. So um, there are some sci-fi elements that appear in there. So... Um, you so the big the one of the the big points of the epic of Gilgamesh is after his his boy Enkidu is um, dies. Um, Spoilers for the goes, epic of Gilgamesh <laughs> once again. That joke crushed. <laughs> I was like really pleased with it. Um, 
so after he died in his grief, Gilgamesh wants to go find like the herb of immortality. He wants to, he wants to be immortal so that he can like save his, um, partner, his buddy. Yeah. And, um, and and so it's a heroic journey to exotic worlds and and he's seeking immortality and like these these things that kind of um are resonant with yeah, big, ideas of, of like speculative fiction. Yeah. yeah. So that 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 uh, appears in like the earliest uh known recorded works of of literature. Um and so I have tasked Anna with finding so so this this episode has been super fun to put together um and so i'm going to hand it over to anna who is going to tell us about some um speculative fiction and speculative fiction elements because we also sometimes you we get into yeah like i didn't want to push too much on the whole like the like science fiction that predates writing or exists outside of writing because it starts to get into like topics of um like cosmology and belief and um and it's a little shaky and it's not like uh, like i i am aware of the um optics of (laughs) of somebody in my position like calling someone's belief system uh science fiction or Mm -hmm. something like that and like i like that's a conversation like that look that's a that that's a subject that requires much more um like like nuance and grace and sort of goodwill um like like I'm both the the listener and the and the speaker um then then I think we can adequately give that topic here um uh, but just thinking about um just like thinking about what we consider to be a part of science fiction or speculative fiction in our own society and how that is also uh uh, socially informed and it's like a constructed category so um some of these will touch on religious elements yeah but that's that's not what that's, that's not, not what we're saying here. here yeah so anna yeah school me i'm gonna put on my best story time voice oh yay is everybody settled in and comfy okay here we go so we're gonna start with the ramayana which is believed to have been written by the poet Valmiki. And it tells the story of Rama, an avatar of the Hindu god Vishnu. And an avatar is, to my understanding, like a a version or an appearance or aspect of of a deity. And so the Ramayana is made up of seven books in 500 sections. We are on the South Asian subcontinent. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Set the scene. Big book, big seven books. 500 big, sections. Big movie. Big DVD case <laughs> for the like 10 part series. Yikes, Aroni. Uh, and something like 24,000 verses. Mm-hmm. So it's lengthy. Um, and so the story follows Rama's journey as he tries to rescue his wife Sita from the evil Ravana, the 10 headed king of Lanka. So that's what that's about. Spoilers for the Ramayana. The part of the story that pertains to our episode is the Vimana, or Chariot of the Gods. It is. It is. I didn't put that together at the moment, but yeah, it isn't absolutely the Chariot of the Gods? Question mark. In, in fact, Chariot of the Gods. Yeah. So, the, the Sanskrit word vimana literally means measuring out, or traversing, or having been measured out. Okay. And so, in the Ramayana, the Pushpaka or flowery 
or beflowered mm. uh, Vimana of Ravana, so the, the ten-headed king, mm-hmm. is described as follows. Quote, The Pushpaka Vimana that resembles the sun and belongs to my brother was brought by the powerful Ravana, that aerial and excellent Vimana going everywhere at will, that chariot resembling a bright cloud in the sky, and the king, Rama, got in, and the excellent chariot at the command of the Ragira rose up into the higher atmosphere, end quote. So that's distinct from, so there are earlier versions, earlier earlier texts, in which there are flying chariots, like literal chariots pulled by flying horses, um, and those are... And sometimes geese. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Huh. That's like a, that, man... Mm-mm. That would strike fear in my heart. <laughs> just geese on, in, pulling a chair. Just geese coming at me. Yeah. In irrespective form. of what or, they're yeah. ringing. Um, and so, so that, that in, the, in the Ramayana, that the Vimana is the first one of these things, these flying conveyances that is described in the way that it is as, as clearly more than a chariot. It's mm-hmm. got other things going on. It's got like rooms and yeah. stuff. Oh, it's, we will get, it's we like will a, get to that. It's like flying a palace, really. I was going to say RV, but that just sort of speaks to our... <laughs> well, yeah, it's like a flying RV with like columns. Like a big, big RV. Yeah, like a really big... Um, <laughs> leaning, uh, doubling down on this That's fine. It's fine. Um, so in the Rig Veda, which is a collection of ancient Vedic Sanskrit hymns, a similar vehicle appears, although it's referred to as a ratha. So I'm going to quote here in a minute from a blog post by Jason Colavito titled Vimana Aircraft of India, colon, more sloppy scholarship from David Childress. <laughs> uh, also, before you get into that, um, yes. the I think the National Airline of Bangladesh is yep. named for the Vimana. Yes, Biman. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that which, was confusing for me when I was doing research oh, for bet, this section. I bet. No, being like, this one's about the airline. It's real? It's, it flies? <laughs> Turns out, airplanes do. <laughs> We'll, yeah, we'll get to the rest. So, for context, thank you, Childress. Childress, <laughs> mm, I, maybe possibly Childress, because he's a French author. Oh no! And the owner of Adventures Unlimited Press, which is a publishing house established in 1984, Dang. specializing. You know, is it older than me? Specializing in books on unusual topics such as ancient mysteries, oh. unexplained phenomena, alternative history. Historical revisionism. Oh, no. Oh, no. You just call it that? Like, that's... Mm. (laughs) His own works primarily concentrate on pseudo-archaeological and pseudo-scientific topics, such as Atlantis and Lemuria, (sighs) pole shifts, the hollow earth, pre-Columbian transoceanic contact, suppressed technology, Nikola Tesla, free energy, UFOs and ancient astronauts, anti-gravity... Vimana aircraft, secret societies, and other conspiracy theories. So I, I think maybe um, I would prefer if the publishing house were adventures uh, slightly more limited. Childress refers to himself as a rogue archaeologist. Oh, no. So deep breaths, everyone. <laughs> Two-word horror story. Right <laughs> All right, take it away. Jason Colavito. Quote. I thought you like had him. He was like, "Is he here?" <laughs> he just pops up behind the, the baffling you put up. <laughs> it's me, Jason Galavito. In his, so I'm quoting now. In his anti-gravity handbook, David Childress describes the imaginary aircraft of prehistoric India this way: 
So, sub-quote. According to ancient Indian texts, the people had flying machines, which were called vimanas. The ancient Indian epic describes a vimana as a double-deck, circular aircraft with portholes and a dome, much as we would imagine a flying saucer. End sub-quote. First of all, no it doesn't. <laughs> Let me return to Jason Colorito. The concept of these flying chariots as UFO-style airships originates in a fraud. <laughs> in a fraud. Uh, the Vaimanika Shastra, allegedly an ancient Sanskrit epic, but one channeled from the astral realm by a Hindu psychic in the year 1918. No evidence of this text exists prior to 1952, and even the translator, heavy quotes around translator, of the text makes explicit that it was channeled from the spirit world between 1918 and 1923. The fake text specifically compares the Vimanas to modern aircraft, describing their propulsion systems and other modern technological achievements. So, what Childress is drawing from is is Mediapi. So it's it's not at all from the Rigveda or correct. The it's from a made up. Well, it's 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 from it's from an epic that was written by someone much later, purported to be channeled from the astral realm. So, so it's so rather than being something that is um, like several many centuries old because it's mm-hmm. like the when 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 are the Vedas written down? So Chil- what Childress is doing is saying that is sort of giving equal weight to an established um, like literary and religious canon, which for reference, was written between 1500 and 1200 BCE. Okay. So. Okay. When you said centuries and centuries, understatement. Okay. I got, okay. Okay. Yep. So Uh millennia. So something that has been in place for millennia. Versus something that was. Something that was. Roughly from the 50s. Something something that was written um, at the earliest contemporaneous with the like development of aircraft. Um, but possibly later. Mm-hmm. That's is that interesting. That's, that's something I never knew. Like knowing, like having, like being aware of like the Vimana and like the chariots mm-hmm. of the gods reference and, and that sort of stuff. Um, I thought that um, I, I thought that it was misconstrued from like actual from a like text, a, a mistranslation or something, or just that that it just like says that that like it no. the, the way that like. You know, like the way that in the book of Ezekiel, like Ezekiel's vision is is sure. something that like is definitely there. Like it's like you definitely read it and you're like, that sounds wild. And then from there you can be like, you know, if you, you know, like everything looks like a nail, if you've got a hammer sort of thing, sure, like everything yeah. looks like a UFO, if you've got like a pseudoscience bent. Um, like I, like I thought it was something like that, the equivalent of that, where there's something that is very like explicitly curious mm. and then sort of taken and run with but it turned like this Turns guy not so much um that's so interesting and also interesting that like in the comments of that blog post i don't know what's been up with me i've been reading so many comments don't on blog read the posts. comments but there was a, like somebody who wrote and was like like don't like mock my religion or whatever and somebody replied to it and they're like that's not what's happening here. Like the guy who's like mocking your religion 
is the guy that he wrote the anti-gravity handbook based on. Yeah. Yeah. It's the guy who is sort of like cherry picking and like taking way out of context and yeah. like bending to his own needs. These, these stories. So, so as for the UFO from the quotation that started the blog post, the yeah. it's shaped like it's got a dome and it's got portholes and stuff. Guess what? Childress says it's from the Ramayana, but it's actually a poor paraphrase derived from a 1914 summary of the Ramayana. So, so it's not even from the the the. It's from like Chandler guy. The, no, it's from like the Cliff Notes. The no, the description. No, so the the Vimana, what he calls the Vimana, yeah, is taken for like the idea of them mm-hmm. comes from the Chandler guy. Okay, and then like. Sort of bat, the description like, of them as the as a UFO shape oh. comes from a badly paraphrased summary okay. of the Ramayana, and so and then he Childress made the connection. Yeah, wow. So here's so from the actual okay. Ramayana in a standard translation. Here okay. is and and I'm still quoting from Jason Colavito, although I have mixed words around in that sentence. So here is one passage describing... So we're we're drawing from Jason Colavito here. So here is a passage describing Pushpaka, which is, again, the the flowery Vimana from the actual Ramayana in a standard translation. Quote, The Pushpaka was graced with ranges of goodly pillars as if blazing in splendor, splendor, throughout garnished with narrow secret rooms and saloons, piercing the heavens with golden staircases and graceful and grand raised seats, rows of golden and crystal windows, and dioceses, dioceses? composed of sapphires, emeralds, and other superb gems, embellished with noble vidrumas, costly stones, and round pearls, as also with plastered terraces, pasted with red sandal, which I think sandalwood, mm-hmm. um, like unto gold, and furnished with a sacred aroma, mm-hmm. and resembling <laughs> sandalwood, delicious mm-hmm. smell, and resembling the sun new risen. End quote. So it's a fancy flying palace. It's not yeah. remotely shaped like a UFO, and it's fiction. So that was, I mean, so um, we will link to a really interesting article on the site Mint. Uh, by Akshat Rathi in the show notes that gives a lengthy history and analysis of why general public knowledge of history of science in India is just generally poor. Um, It pretty much, you know, summary, it pretty much comes down to it's the fault of the British colonial government and India's educational system is still recovering from the systemic ignorance of most of India's pre-colonial scientific accomplishments. Mm, So we're going to take a quick ad break and then we'll be back for more story time. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, 
membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. We're back. We're all on our story mats. We've had our apple juice. And we're going to settle in for another story. This one comes from a collection of Japanese fairy tales translated by Ye Theodora Ozaki, who was a popular translator of Japanese texts in the early 20th century. So the stories are based on a version written in Japanese by Sadanami Sanjin, but Ozaki was pretty loosey-goosey with the stories themselves. So in her own words, she writes, quote, These stories are not literal translations, and though the Japanese story and all quaint Japanese expressions have been faithfully preserved, they have been told more with the view to interest young readers of the West than the technical student of folklore, end quote. So I've shortened the story considerably for time here, but the full version will be linked in the show notes, and it's on a wonderful site curated by the Florida Center for Instructional Technology College of Education um, of the University of South Florida. So there are downloadable PDFs and audiobook formats of collections of stories and poems from, like, they're in the public domain. They're all Mm -hmm. in the public domain, and, and there's lots and lots of them, so you can go check that out. Okay, so here is the story. Long ago, there was a young fisherman named Urashima Taro. I'm going to Americanize that. In uh, on What, by being like, Charlie? No, no, no. Oh, I, I just mean like, like it should have been Taro. Like, okay. I, okay. Yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> like, I'm going to give you a different name. Oh, no, gosh, the way, like, no. The, the way that like the State Department did. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I just, okay. I mean, I'm going to probably accidentally pronounce it badly. Uh, so, Urashima was a remarkably skilled fisherman and also a very kind-hearted young man. One evening, he was walking home from a day's fishing when he saw a group of boys tormenting a small turtle, whacking at it with sticks. Urashima bribed the boys to give him the turtle, and he carried the little guy down to the water, releasing it. The next morning, Urashima went out as usual in his boat. The weather was fine, and the sea and sky were both blue and soft. Urashima got into his boat and dreamily pushed out to sea, throwing his line as he did so. He felt unusually happy that morning, and he could not help wishing that, like the turtle he set free the day before, he had thousands of years to live instead of his own short span of human life. Then, Urashima heard his name being called over the water. He looked around and was startled to see the turtle he had rescued the day before bobbing next to his boat. Urashima said to the turtle, "'Was that you who called my name?' The turtle nodded, saying, Yesterday you saved my life, and I have come to thank you for your kindness. Um, I've left this next bit in verbatim because it just it charmed me. 
Urashima said, Come up into the boat. I would offer you a smoke, but as you are a turtle, doubtless you do not smoke. And the fisherman laughed at the joke. Hee 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 hee, laughed the turtle. Sake is my favorite refreshment, but I do not care for tobacco. Aww. <laughs> Indeed, said Urashima. I regret very much that I have no sake in my boat to offer you, but come up and dry your back in the sun. Turtles always love to do that. After a little while, the turtle said to Urashima, Have you ever seen the Sea King's palace? No? Then come with me, and I'll show you. Urashima saw that the turtle had suddenly become large enough for him to climb onto its shell, and together they swam deep under the sea. They reached the magnificent palace of the Sea King, and the king's daughter welcomed them, thanked Urashima warmly for saving the turtle, and offered to be Urashima's bride. Oh, I know, it took a, it escalated really quickly. Urashima was extremely on board with the idea, because she was gorgeous. Okay. Yep. Yeah, she was very beautiful. Uh, and they were married at a celebratory feast that evening. Wow. I know. Moving fast. Urashima spent three happy days at the palace and then decided he should return home since he had aging parents to take care of. Oh, what a catch. Yeah. The princess sorrowfully gave Urashima a small lacquered box to take with him, telling him never to open it or something terrible would befall him. Then the turtle carried him back to shore. But things looked different. The houses had changed. The people had different faces than the neighbors he remembered. Urashima walked bewilderedly towards his house and asked a passing man, Excuse me, but till the last few days I have lived in this house. My name is Urashima Taro. Ha! laughed the man. You must not make such jokes. It is true that once upon a time a man called Urashima Taro did live in this village, but that is a story three hundred years old. He could not possibly be alive now. Urashima was distraught, and not knowing what else to do, thought of opening the princess's gift box, for he thought it might contain something to take him back to the Sea King's palace. So slowly he opened the box. Only a beautiful little purple cloud rose out of the box in three soft wisps. For an instant it covered his face and wavered over him as if unwilling to go, and then it floated away like vapor over the sea. Urashima, who had been, till that moment, a strong and handsome youth of twenty-four, suddenly became very, very old. His back doubled up with age, his hair turned snowy white, his face wrinkled, and he fell down dead on the beach. Poor he was at the beach that makes you old? Urashima. No, not that beach, not the night Shyamalan <laughs> beach, which I think is just called old. The Beach. Is it's it called Old. The, the, the beach is a Leonardo DiCaprio film. Oh yeah, that's true. Because of his disobedience, he could never return to the Sea King's realm or the lovely princess beyond the sea. So, I mean, it's a, it's a morality tale. Oh. It's like, don't be disobedient. But also, what? The, this story, it's like, kids, don't disobey because bad things will befall you. Because he was told, don't open the box, and he did. Like, that's the... It's a... It's a yep. Okay. Yep. It's like a... I mean, that's the, 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 the story holds a much, much deeper yeah. meaning and like a lot of more Gosh. cultural stuff, but like the general purpose yeah. of that story is to say disobedience has repercussions. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, a story really similar to, but much earlier than that of Rip Van Winkle, if you've heard of that one. Um, he goes to sleep and wakes up after decades have passed. My, um, in high school, my teacher didn't understand that oh and she like thought that everybody in town was gaslighting him 
Like, oh, that's a much darker take on that story. Jeez. Um, they all got together and I had decided. To be like, Excuse me, Miss Marsh. Um, there's a similar. I have a different read on this story. Uh, there's a similar Chinese tale of a woodcutter named Wang Ji who finds that many years have passed while he watched immortals play a board game. So he get, like got distracted by some immortals playing chess or, you know, not chess, but, um, and then like went back home and was like, oh no. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are Irish folktales of people entering Tirnanog, which is the sort of enchanted other world. Mm-hmm. Um, and emerging after what they thought was a period of days, only to find that years have gone by. So, what does this, this motif have to do with science fiction or speculative fiction? Time travel. Oh well, yeah. I mean, yes. Time travel. Yes. It, yes. It's art. Exactly. I'm on the. I'm on the story, Matt. I'm like becoming a child. Oh, like, good. T- time. Time travel. Thank you, Amber. Yes. Time travel. Thank time you. travel. Okay. Yes. It's arguably a form of time travel. And in fact, there is an aspect of mathematics slash physics that is named for the story. Oh. The Urashima effect. No. Did you not know this? No. Oh, this is why I was yelling while I was writing it. Wow. Yeah. So this describes the proposed phenomenon of time dilation. Ah. So, which also is a plot point in an especially weird episode of Elementary. Anyway. So... Here's gosh, Anna, Anna. Spoilers. What was her procedurals? I got bored with elementary. I've moved on. Uh, to secondary? <laughs> uh, so here is the actual physics definition of time dilation with the attached caveat that physics was my worst subject in school, so please don't yell at me. In physics and relativity, time dilation is the difference in the elapsed time as measured by two clocks. Mm-hmm. So that is due to either relative velocity between them, so like one clock's on an airplane and one clock's on the ground, uh, or to a difference in gravitational potential between their locations because gravity can affect time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, velocity and gravitational time dilation have been the subject of science fiction works in a variety of media, including examples like the movie Interstellar. Mm-hmm. And Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. In Interstellar, a key plot point, uh, I guess, spoilers for Interstellar, slightly? It's not, uh, whatever. No? Okay. I mean, you could, it's not going to help. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a key plot point involves a planet which is close to a rotating black hole, and on the surface of which, one hour is equivalent to seven years on Earth because of time dilation. So, Amber, the next time you're on a podcast-related book-buying spree, will you please get me a copy of The Science of Interstellar by physicist Kip Thorne, who consulted on that film. Yeah. Thank you. Please and thank you. So, is this a thing? Yes. What? It's been been tested. No, time dilation. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Time dilation. Is time dilation a thing? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, and we know this because thanks to the Hafele-Keating experiment. Now, this was a test of the theory of relativity. In October 1971, Joseph C. Hafele, a physicist, and Richard E. Keating, an astronomer, took four cesium beam atomic clocks aboard commercial airliners. They flew twice around the world, first eastward, then westward, and compared the clocks against others that remained at the United States Naval Observatory. When they were put back together, the clocks, the three sets of clocks, were found to disagree with one another. Um, and since they were atomic clocks, like it wasn't that like the mechanism wound down, like yeah. they, they had they had accounted for that. Yeah. Um, and their differences were consistent with the predictions of special and general relativity. So, 
tying that into like elements of, of science fiction and time travel and stuff, mm-hmm. the Urashima effect is named for that story. Physics. That's amazing. Gosh. I am like amazed that you... I stumbled upon that. Got real science. Yep. That is not what I was expecting. I thought you were. And, and so when I yelled into the next room, like, this is so cool. I thought you were like, yes, I know. And that's what I thought you were referring to. No, I just thought you were really excited about speculative fiction. I am when it is when it when I find connections like that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And we've got one more, which is the like. Like the like true like OG. God, this was like, so fun. Yeah, this was this is what I thought you were yelling about. I the, was the, later the later yelling. Anna did a lot of yelling I did. today. I had a great time. I was having, yeah, that's great. Okay. I'm so glad. I'm genuinely so glad. Yeah, me too. Okay, so another candidate for early science fiction or speculative fiction is the work A True Story, or sometimes you'll see it as A True History, um, by Wait. the. Yes. It's the same thing. Yeah, I know. That's just... I know. Oh. Huh. But sometimes... You'll, just in yeah, case... Yeah, okay. Like in, just in case our listeners see English. those. English. Uh, read it in the origin. By the Hellenized Syrian author Lucian of Samosata, which just made me want a samosa. Mm. So Lucian was a satirist, rhetorician, a word I did not know until today. A rhetorator. A rhetorator. And I, I first wrote this as rhetorician and Google was like, you sure? <laughs> I was like, I don't know, Google, you have been faking the, the spelling of archaeology. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and he was an author of many pamphlets in the second century oh, no. CE. Oh, no. No, like, <laughs> just like his thoughts on stuff. Pamphlets. Um, he's best known for a very tongue-in-cheek style of writing, which he used to lampoon religious practices, superstitions, and belief in the paranormal. Everything. Oh, you sweepy? I guess sweepy. <laughs> but story time. But he would have been great. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> um, Nap times after story. He would have been great for um, Twitter. Yeah. Sounds he like would, he, oh, he would have loved Twitter. He would have. <laughs> R.I.P. Lucian of Samosata. You would have loved Twitter. Oh, gone too soon <laughs> for Twitter. Um, so he's um, everything that is known about Lucian's life <laughs> comes from his own writings. Oh, cool. Which makes it difficult to interpret because of his extensive use of sarcasm. (laughs) That's how I want to be remembered. So, are you ready for a whirlwind summary of a true story? Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. First of all, Lucian opens by saying that none of this is true and that everything that the reader is about to enjoy is a complete lie. What? So we can't fault him there. Like, he sets it up. But what if he's joking? He's not. Mm. You'll see. Mm. Also... Uh, this this is meant to be a parody of Traveler's Tales. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's he so he's dunks like, on Herodotus. Drop dead, Herodotus. Yep. <laughs> uh, and it is extensive. Uh, we'll link to a site, a really wonderful site called, the, I think it's called the, the Lucian Project. Um, be a good name for it. Yeah, with the full text and analysis, if you want to dive in, like all of his yeah. texts and like citations for analyses of them. It's great. The narrative begins with Lucian and his fellow travelers journeying out past the pillars of Heracles. Those are the the promontories at the eastern side of the Straits of Gibraltar between southern Spain and northern Africa. Can confirm. Thank you. (laughs) Blown off course by a storm, they come to an island with a river of wine filled with fish and bears. A marker indicating that Heracles and Dionysus have traveled to this point. There are also trees that look like women. Oh. This sounds... 
great. Yeah, a, a wine river and lady trees? Uh-huh. Get me there. Like bears and fish? Yeah. Goes together like a horse and carriage. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after leaving the island, they are caught up by a whirlwind and taken to the moon, (laughs) where they find themselves embroiled in a full-scale war between the king of the moon and the king of the sun over colonization of the morning star. Both armies include bizarre life... Sorry. Both armies include bizarre hybrid life forms. These include... Horse vultures. Oh, no. Salad wings. These I'm are, sorry? These are salad wings. These are birds whose feathers are herbs and whose wings are lettuce leaves. Salad wings. Uh, millet throwers. <laughs> Garlic men. <laughs> I've, I've said next to Italian bias. <laughs> Flea archers. Unclear. I was not able to. I didn't didn't look too deeply into citations and yeah, ostrich slingers. I believe these are ostrich creatures who are using slings, not people hucking ostriches into the opposing forces. Although that would be effective. Uh, And horse cranes. Crane the bird, not crane the. Crane the what? The equipment. I I thought it'd be like the. No, the, the, the construction equipment. I did not. I thought of like Fraser Crane. No. Miles Crane. Again, we're coming from very different places on this. Stephen Crane. No. Okay. The armies of the sun win the war by clouding over the moon and blocking out the sun's light. Both parties come to a peace agreement. After, after returning to Earth, the adventurers are swallowed by a 200 mile long or 320 kilometer long whale in whose belly they discover a variety of fish people oh my god against whom they wage war and triumph what is the bellicosity i know of these protagonists come at me fish bro is it's a lot they they kill the whale by starting a bonfire like there are no, no, no new tricks that's pinocchio and escape by propping its mouth open. Wait, that happened in Pinocchio? Didn't it, or something? They light a fire in the in the belly and of the whale. It kills the whale. I don't. You know, it doesn't kill the whale, but I think it makes him spit him out. Is that anything? Am I remembering that wrong? I am not the person to ask. Alrighty. Well, the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Oh. Next, <laughs> they encounter a sea of milk. Oh God! An island of cheese. Can you imagine the smell? Yes. And the Island of the Blessed. I would argue that the Island of Cheese is the more blessed place, but sure. <laughs> Lucian, so at the Island of the, the Blessed, Lucian meets the heroes of the Trojan War, oh. other mythical men and animals, as well as Homer and Pythagoras. Man, can you imagine being Homer and showing up at the Island of the Blessed and being like, ooh, uh, ooh, just like, don't look at me. <laughs> Like, not oh, perceive. I said some. I said some stuff. I said some stuff about you, sir. Listen, I, um, yep. <laughs> they find sinners being punished, oh. the worst of them being the ones who had written books with lies and fantasies, including Herodotus and Theseus. Oh! Theseus? Catesius. Catesius. The CT. Yep. Catesius. Oh, yes. When I said he dunked on Herodotus, he, like, 
Oh, a real Herodotus is over party. Yeah, cancel Herodotus. After leaving the island of the blessed, they deliver a letter to Calypso. Not your dog. Hello. Yeah, her namesake. Yes. Right? Yes, that one. The the nymph. Or the... Agigia? Yeah. Nah. Uh, Given to them... (laughs) Given to them by Odysseus. Okay. Explaining that he wishes he had stayed with her so he could have lived eternally. Oh. Yep. Oh, well that's... Mm. Uh, Okay. He's shipping. Odysseus is the worst character ever. The fact that he's just like, oh, I I miss you. It was great living with you. Just like not, not, it's not about her. No. Put that away. This we don't. We do not have time. We don't have time to get into my no to, to litigate my views on Calypso. They discover a chasm in the ocean. Oh, but eventually sail around it, discover a far off continent, and decide to explore it. The book ends abruptly with Lucian stating that their future adventures will be described in the upcoming sequels. <laughs> this turns out to be the biggest lie of all because he wrote no such sequels. <laughs> so I mean that was that's. A true story. (laughs) Um, And so this touches on a part of Alan's initial episode request about using science fiction as social commentary. Yeah. Um, And it also touches back on our conversation with with Pat Edwards about subjectivity in recreating the past. And so underneath all the the wacky adventures and the garlicmen and the cheese island and, and the satire... Lucian is really questioning the idea of truth found in factual nonfiction writing. Like mm-hmm. Herodotus. If the purpose of satire is to improve the condition of a certain aspect of society, then Lucian is trying to call out some of the more grossly inaccurate worldly depictions. Herodotus. <laughs> in order to improve literature, history, and entertainment. Are you not entertained? I am super entertained. Yeah, so that's that's my story time. That's great. So I've got one last set of examples to talk about from um, uh, sort of pre-modern speculative fiction. And it comes from The Thousand and One Nights, which is is known known in English, um, she liked the mass market as Arabian Nights, uh, but Thousand and One Nights is a direct translation of the title, El Flela Wolela, which means One Thousand Nights and One Night. Just like math how, checks out it's just the construction yeah um and and so th- that El Flela Walela is a collection of folk tales uh, which was compiled in Arabic um in the golden age of Islam um so that that spanned from like the 8th to the 14th century CE That's a long golden age Lovely. yeah yeah um uh, but but as as far as like a, a document is concerned, um, they're a bit more fluid in their composition and evolution. Like for example, it's known that the story of um, Sindibad, the and his seven voyages, Sindibad the sailor, yeah, that one um, is known usually um, like elided as as Sinbad. Sinbad, right? yeah. yeah. So there, there's Sindibad and Hindibad. Oh, and and it's like a because they're Sind and Hind, and that's right, yeah, okay. like on either side of the Indus right, River. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Um, so it it ends up being that's the section that like that's like we read some of that like in my Arabic class, and I was like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> so Sinbad the Sailor is um, predates the whole thing. That's predates just thousand and one nights. Yeah, okay. It, it was its own story because okay. this is like a. a Compendium of folk tales, um, couched in the the story of Shahrazad, and I'm getting there. Okay, oh sorry. Um, and then there are some other stories that are included in 
Arabian Nights and now like more like kind of popularly part of Thousand and One Nights um, that were never there originally um, until uh, this um, Syrian guy, um, Syrian storyteller, uh, showed up in Paris and spoke and was like telling stories like in a performance. His name was Hanna Diab. Um, and he told the story of um, Aladdin um, like Aladdin and the Lamp and the story of Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves. Those things, those are like probably the two best known of the Arabian night stories. Yeah. Aladdin and, especially. And they didn't, they didn't make it in until like the 19th century huh. by a French guy who was like, this is great. And wrote him down and added it in. Um, punch that up for you. Yeah. And so like, what, as, as Anna referenced, Sorry. um, so the Thousand and One Nights, as a as a as a story, um, is about well the it it, it begins as um, a story of this Sasanian king. Familiar with the Sasanians? Can't say I am. Can't say you are. Can't say I am. Um, so um, the the king's name here is Shahriar, um, which um, is a is a Persian name. Oh, okay. Because Shah is is a title, is it? Is In, um, yeah, yeah, it's like royal, yeah, it has to do with lineage okay. or like royalty sure. or something. Um, I don't know. I don't speak Persian. <laughs> Entirely fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so he, like Shah, uh, Shahriar is the, is the Sasanian king. And so what's interesting about this being a Sasanian king is the Sasanian empire um, it was the last uh, P- Persian system of governance before the Islamic conquest, and and so like oh it was up I, I think it was up until like the eighth century CE, and then after that, so that's like the last, uh, so the the sort of like the end of the arc of the fl- fluorescence mm-hmm. uh, in the region. Um, so it's it's interesting that he is like especially as this character is uh, characterized um, that he is he is something that from the um, he is a, a figure from the Jahaliya so a figure from like ig- the period of ignorance before well he he is in a state of ignorance before receiving Islam so like he gets to be but he is a bad like oh, he's, he's bad. a bad okay. he's a bad guy he's bad. from a time before. We oh, knew better. so he's an example of okay. Yeah, I see. like he's a, he's villainous. Okay, and so he's villainous, and he's from the he's from a, the period. Um, if we're going to yeah, if we're saying that this was compiled sometime between the eighth and the fourteenth century before the golden age of Islam, he's from before the before times, the okay. golden age of Islam. Understood. So the the sort of uh, inciting incident for the the Arabian Nights is uh, Shahriar is finds out that his like his his bro or his brother-in-law or somebody like somebody like is um cheated on and he's just like are you kidding me and like beheads her and then he finds out that his wife cheated on him like even worse and he becomes like a total men's rights guy oh Um, no and he's like all women are the same like they're it's only a matter of time before they're going to uh betray you so what he ended up doing was, so he, he killed his wife and then he took a new wife um, and then would murder her the next morning 
before she had a chance to gotcha. to betray him. And so he goes through He's got a bunch so, of disposable wives. So his his vizier um, is is requ- is responsible for find for like Finding sourcing wives. Yep. And so he gets through all of the uh, all of the 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 young women, the, the, the virgins of marriageable ladies. age. Yeah. He exhausts all of them, Oof. and then the last girl that's available is Shahrazad, his own daughter. And so he's like, well, oh no! So he he um, so Shahrazad is going to um, is is gets is married to Shahriar, okay. and he she's like well let me tell you a story like we don't have to go to bed yet like let me tell you a story um and so she starts telling him a story and then like she's a very good storyteller she's very clever and she she like knows what's up and she's like well like let me let me tell you this and then she leaves it on a cliffhanger and he's like well on it like I want to hear the end of this story so I'm not going to behead you this morning not today let's pick this up tonight you finish the story and then I'll behead you I gotta go do king stuff but and when I get back she's like you got it baby like I'll keep telling you the story and so she goes through she goes on for 1001 nights telling him more stories and over the course of telling him the stories he learns things like he learns things about being a decent person and all of this stuff and so it's this um uh, like i i don't i don't know much about the a thousand even though i just talked about it for several minutes like i don't know a lot about sort of its sort of cultural currency but it stands to reason that this is something about um like the the wisdom of Islam and, and like yeah like like Im- like improving and, one's and, character and, and yeah, yeah and so sort of like sure um, so that is that is how so it's not that there's a thousand and one stories or anything no, like no, that no. it's that she, she tells these stories each night as a of. as a ruse to keep him from murdering her yeah um, and then at the end I guess he realizes that like. Um, the version I know is that over that time he falls in love with her. Well, I think he falls in love with her, but also understands that like there is more to women than like inevitable betrayal. Incredible. But also you like can't blame nope. somebody for like fighting someone else. No, I mean <laughs> he sounds like a catch. Yeah. So so that's that's what um the Thousand and One Nights is about. Um, but there are a couple of those stories that are that count in the in the realm of speculative fiction. Tell me. Um, so the one that so I'm going to tell you two. Okay. And um, the first is Abdullah the Fisherman. Um, so he develops the ability to breathe underwater and becomes Abdullah the Fishman. Fish Which is people, I know I can't believe we slept on this through through the fish people episode because here is a fish person. Well. Um, so he discovers so in developing this um, uh, ability to breathe underwater, he discovers More a like whole, an agility. Mm. Um, uh, he discovers a whole world of fish people who have this like utopian like like proto communist society. Sure. And he's like, wow. And then he comes back. And so I've included here for Anna an illustration. It's using the brims of production. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I gotta go. You gotta pack it up. Um, so, so like, that's, that's one that is sort of reminiscent of um, our story 
of the the time traveler, the mm-hmm. time dilator. Ew. Oh, no. <laughs> I take it back. Um, oh, I've had that procedure done. <laughs> but there are other stories in the Thousand and One Nights that deal with sci-fi elements, like talking about the moon. There's there's one where she like tells a story about the moon and then um, like take shots at like other planets and like their awful societies there. Um, there's a whole lot of robots. Um, in um, El Flayla Walela and we'll save that for another episode much like Scheherazade cliffhanger on robots because yeah because there's gonna yeah so don't murder us nope because we're gonna tell you about robots at some point in the future Um, but what I wanna end on um, is the story of Bulukia who brings us back around to the most original of sci-fi roots uh, so Bulakia is searching for the elixir of immortality. Aren't we uh, all? Yeah, an herb like what Gilgamesh was looking for after his bro Enkidu's death. Uh, and so in the process of finding the herb, he goes on an odyssey across time and space, through the seas, uh, through both heaven and hell, uh, to other worlds. And over the course of doing that, he meets cultures of talking trees, unclear whether they look like ladies oh, yeah, or are not. They sh- are they lady-shaped? I don't know. Hmm. I mean, any tree is lady-shaped if you've not seen a lady long, in long enough. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Unless it's a bropiary. Topia. Yeah, I, I under yeah, Anna. That was not the thing. That, <laughs> That's not what. Okay. Um, talking snakes um, and other snakes. non-humans like Jen and mermaids, fish people. Um, so I just i I think that I think it's really fascinating that there's this like persistent trope of looking for um, immortality and that 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 is peppered through lots of speculative fiction, like going on to like Count of St. Germain and like um, that film, uh, The Fountain. Yes. Um, Like those sorts of things. And I'm not trying to say that there is like a a single um, uh, tensely pulled line of thread between the epic of Gilgamesh no, it's and, not a, it's and not like a, the story of Bulakia, like it's like, not a one-to-one. Yeah. But it is something that, that is, is fascinating when we start thinking about, um, the speculative fiction and speculative futures, which we will continue to do yes. after this break. Hey fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Hey, we're back. But actually, this is future Anna editing the episode, but also in the past. So time travel, relevant to the episode. Anyway, this episode was so much fun that Amber and I just kept going. So what we're going to do is release the final portion of what has turned out to be a series about science fiction and anthropology next week. And so we will have the conclusion, like Scheherazade, we leave you on this cliffhanger, and we will be back in your ears 
next week with the rest of the episode. But until then, you can find us, all our back episodes, at thedirtpod.com. You can also find us anywhere you get your podcasts, and you can find us on social media. We're The Dirt Podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we're at the Dirt Pod, and we love hearing from you, whether it's email at the Dirt Podcast at gmail.com or messages on social media or uh, anything else. Uh, carrier pigeon. Um, can't think of anything else. Anyway, thank you all so much for sticking with us, for listening, and we love you. Goodbye. <laughs>